You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. I think I have my end turned on. Could be wrong on that, though. Okay. Can you hear me? I hope I didn't have a disconnection. I can't hear myself, so I'll just go with it. <laughs> um, if you need me to speak up a little bit more, um, just wave in the back and I'll, I'll see you guys. So um, so yeah, good morning, Redeeming Grace. Uh, my name is Joseph, um, and I will be filling in for Pastor Josh today. Um, our passage today is Mark 4, verses 1 through 34. So if you have a Bible in the, in the seat um, net next to you or on your phone, um, pl- please turn with me and just kind of hang out there today. Um, So there are a number of parables that are covered through this passage. Uh, Most notable is the one that we know as the parable of the sower. This is the first parable given in the book of Mark. And as we'll see in verse 13, Jesus seems to consider this one the parable of parables, the foundation for all other parables. Jesus places such a significant emphasis on this parable, not only in in the repeated refrain, that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Um, But also when he asks asks his disciples, how is it that you do not understand this parable? It's as if he's saying, if you don't understand this one, how do you expect to understand all the others that come after it? As Sinclair Ferguson points out, this parable is the key. If you aren't quite following and applying this one, then it's clear that you aren't really hearing properly. And so following the parable of the sower, Jesus expounds on his application of the parable um, with um, a number of other parables, such as the light under a bushel, the, the mustard seed in the garden, and how these things relate to the kingdom of heaven. So let's begin by reading Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Please follow along with me. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching to them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may see, but not perceive. And they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do not understand, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word, 
And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And when they have no root in themselves but endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Let's take a look at a few details in order to set the scene. It's interesting to note that this is the fourth time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is ministering beside the Sea of Galilee. The first is when he is calling his disciples in uh, chapter one, one, verse 16. In chapter two, he's teaching besides, beside the sea. And similarly, in chapter three, we also see Christ getting into a boat in order to, to avoid being pressed by the crowd. Some scholars have pointed out that the most likely location for this event took place where a natural amphitheater was, was formed. This allowed Christ to speak to a greater crowd um, than at the synagogue or other places throughout the city. Additionally, at this traditional location, you can see all types of the soil that are mentioned in the parable. There was, ro there was rocky soil, um, there was the walking path, um, nearby farmland, and even thorns gr growing along the ditch. So it would seem that Jesus was using the different aspects of the landscape to illustrate the points in, um, in his sermon that he was giving. Also, as in chapters, chapter three, we see the crowd so eager to be close to Christ, possibly for healing um, or some other miracle that they press so hard and closely that Jesus has to retreat into a boat in order to be able to speak with them as he intended. So imagine the crowd filling the horizon in this natural amphitheater um, by, by, the, by the lake. You see them pressing in, shouting for Jesus to see them, to look at them, to perform a miracle for them up to the point that Jesus has to climb into a boat and silence the crowd by saying the word, listen. Silence falls all around them. The crowd gets quiet and anticipation grows as he is about to tell his story. He begins by telling a story about a farmer who's going out to plant a seed. Pretty standard for the day. Um, it was likely planting season then. And you have the same farmer, you have the same quality of seed, but very different results as he goes along planting. Christ then explains various reasons for, what, for why that is. So before moving on, I want to spend a little bit more time interacting with the Greek word that's used um, for, for listen here. Um, according to one commenter, the Greek word um, used here is akuo. Um, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, which is literally translated as to attend to or consider what is being said. So it's not just like the, this passive hearing. Um, it's actually taking the time to think about what is being said and pay attention to, to the words that, that, are, that are being spoken. Um, it's interesting to, to note as well, as R.C. Sproul points out, that the word for obey 
that is most often used in the New Testament is hypa-akuo, which is translated in a sense as hyper-listening, meaning that to take Christ's word and put them to, into action, to obey them, would be the intense listening of what he has to say. So not only are you willfully and intentionally considering them, the next step in the listening process would be to put his words, his commands, into action. So you would not only listen to the words with your ears by hearing his words, not only listening with your mind by considering his words, but also by listening with your action, with your intention, with the direction of your will to do the thing being commanded. Does that make sense? While hypa-akuo isn't used in this passage, this understanding of hyper-listening helps us to see what is required of the believer if obedience is to be made to the word of Christ, this idea of hyper-listening. So Christ is making clear that passivity to his words is in fact disobedience. That unless we actively participate by considering with our minds and desiring to follow with our hearts, that we are not, in fact, listening. So this begs the question, what is Christ saying that we ought to listen so closely? To answer this, let's first break it down into the individual characters of the parable. Many scholars and commenters provide three parts, some saying that this is a parable of the sower, some saying it's a parable of the seed, and some saying it's a parable of the soil. For our purposes today, I will be focusing on the aspects that relate most closely with it being about a parable of the seed. I'll get to why that's important in a moment. Originally, I had this all laid out to be this formulaic discovery of who um, each of the characters are in this parable. It's the engineer in me, what can I say? Um, clarity is brought simply by looking at verse 14, which simply says, the sower sows the word. So then the sower is God, the seeds are the word, and the soil are the ones receiving the word. However, um, I, I wanna make it clear that God can also use others as tools for his sowing. Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, and 7, using a very similar analogy, um, he says, what then is Apollos? What is, a, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So Paul is saying that on his missionary journeys, God used him to plant the seed of the word into people's hearts but ultimately we have God to thank for the seeds that are there. God continues to do this today, which whether you are reading the word or hearing someone preach, God can use them to plant the seed of the word in your heart. And that is my prayer for, for each of you today, um, especially for me as well. Moving back to the parable and focusing on the actions of the sower, we can also observe that this sower is seemingly quite inefficient in the way that he sows the ground. We don't see any talk of tilling or cutting or breaking open the ground to ensure that the seed is planted and given the best chance of bearing fruit, but rather he throws the seed on the ground where, where the birds can come and eat it. He throws the th seeds among rocks where it's too shallow to take root. He throws them among thorns where the seed is choked out, in addition to casting the seed on the good soil that is ready for the seed and is able to bear fruit with it. 
This method of planting may not make a significant amount of sense until we realize that historically this was actually the way the farming was done. A sower would come and, and sow the, um, th throw seed on the ground and he would plow afterwards, um, basically just using a pointed stick to try and, and, and break up the ground and get as much seed as possible to fall in, into the soil uh, where it would then take root. However, with that aside, what we see in this description is not a farmer that doesn't have any idea what he's doing, but rather we see a farmer that is indiscriminately sowing the word, indiscriminately of the type of soil present. In other words, the seed of the word is available to all. He isn't being careful where the word is going. Um, it's available to anyone and everyone, regardless of the condition of, of the heart. The word of God is for all. Now there's another detail in this passage that I never noticed until I began pre preparing for the sermon. The entire parable of the sower is actually an analogy for what is happening in that moment. Jesus is speaking to the crowd. He is living out the parable as he is speaking it. He is in this moment sowing the seed of the word among the people. Considering the crowd, people who desire healing, likely scribes and Pharisees are there as well. His disciples are there. We have a very diverse audience so that as Christ is pointing out the various aspects of the landscape around them, he is also pointing out the different types of hearts that are receiving the word in that moment. So now with this in mind, understanding that God is the one who sows and, this, and we are the soil, our proper response then, if we are to make obedience to the words of Christ, is to hear and obey, to listen and to bear fruit. Jesus says in verse nine, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then again in verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Once the seed of, uh, of the word is planted, God expects it to bear fruit. However, there are reasons why this might not happen, all of which have to do with the conditions of the hearts of those hearing the word. It's tempting at this point to, um, uh, that this passage is merely talking about salvation. It's tempting, especially for e engineers like me, to delve in and create categories and say that this, this one friend that we went to Bible, um, Bible camp with falls in this category because he accepted Christ and now he's no longer a Christian. There was shallowness in his heart. The seed didn't grow. It was choked out by trials and, and various cares of the word. It's also easy to get lost in the weed, you know, in, in the weeds, you know, the thorns and thistles. Debating whether this passage can say that one can lose salvation or not. I certainly don't believe that it does teach that. But I will also say that at times, discussions or debates like these can be profitable in discerning doctrine. But I'm not going to go that direction today. Remember towards the beginning uh, when I said that I wanted to focus on the portions of this parable that um, revealed how it was about the seed? That is going to be my, my focus for today's message. So let me pose this question then. What if the parable is not a one-time event but is actually every time that you hear and are exposed to the word. This parable then is about some very serious questions that we need to be asking ourselves. What if the thorns and thistles 
don't just represent the worldly cares for the non-believer, but also for God's people every time the word is spoken? Do we let ambition, the desire for money or experience or our passions be the most fulfilling thing about us? Are our hearts so overshadowed with other cares of the world that there's no room for the seed to grow? Regarding the rocks, is there shallowness in our life? Does the word penetrate only a small portion of the heart? Do we consider ourselves Christians merely because hearing a message or reading the Bible stirs our emotions? On the other hand, do we consider ourselves Christians because we have intellectually assented to it, because we believe it, um, and, the, de and the, um, the, the various depths of intellect that, that come with Christianity? Is Christianity only mere to us, or does it penetrate the whole self? Does it captivate our affections? Does it move, it move us to study as one would study mathematics or philosophy or some other intellectual namesake? Does it penetrate the whole heart or is there only one portion of us that we give over to the words of Christ? Do we listen to the word but then forget it the next day, returning to old habits? When trials come, are we tempted to immediately give up or do we set our faith as the anchor point of our lives? Notice that the same sun which beats down on the plant that springs up among the rocks and causes it to wither is the same sun that beats down on the plant in the good soil. The difference between the two is where the seed took root. It wasn't merely an emotional response. It wasn't merely an intellectual response but it was a response guided by the Holy Spirit that allowed the seed to take root and develop a deep and strong foundation. We must give the entirety of ourselves over to Christ with nothing in us held back. This last question regarding the soil that falls along the path and the, where the birds swoop in to acquire their fast food meal, perhaps one way this applies is through distractions. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis invokes the image of a man who's very sophisticated, and he is reading a book that delves into questions of spiritual things, sparking him to lead on a spiritual journey of discovery. However, as one of Screwtape's junior demons reports in the book, as soon as he began questioning spiritual man matters, he was immediately provoked by an urge reminding this man that he was hungry. And so he steps away and begins begins looking for a place to eat. He encounters these various aspects of real life, and thus the seed is stolen away, preventing it from taking root. This distraction category may also keep us from listening to the word of God in everyday life as believers. How many of us are easily distracted by our phones? <laughs> How many of us are easily distracted by hunger? Or the coffee maker going off in the morning? during devotions or prayer? How many of us are distracted by thoughts of work or school? The point of this is not to shame you into obedience, to shame you into doing better in your devotions or in your prayer life or Bible studies. It's so that we know what's happening when these distractions arise, partially so that we're able to be honest about what's, what's going on in our own hearts. 
but also so it enables us to fight back against it, to fight back against those distractions as they come, to fight in cooperation with the Holy Spirit so that the seeds of the word may be planted in our hearts when we encounter them. We ought to align our wills, our intentions, our actions with the words of Jesus to see that the word is planted in our hearts and bears fruit in our lives. We can also move beyond the definition of mere distraction as well. Recently, I was listening to a podcast hosted by Sinclair Ferguson, where he asked the question, what if the path used in this example was the path used by the farmer when he was sowing? What if this was the place of our hearts where he passed by again and again while carrying his seed? Was this what had hardened the soil? Every time that the farmer went sowing, the ground he walked upon was getting harder and harder until it was virtually impenetrable. It wasn't as if the farmer wasn't there, that he didn't pass by. Those weren't the reasons that the soil was hardened, but rather it was our familiarity with his footsteps that in fact leads to feelings of detachment. It's not never hearing the truth of God that leads to the word being snatched away, but rather our complacency in hearing the message. It leads us to being removed or distant from God himself. Perhaps we may even struggle with actively and intentionally shielding from the word of God, defending ourselves from his, from his penetrating power. We come up with various reasons not to believe something and actively strive against the commands that he gives us. In all these things, I confess my own fault as well. It reveals to us the areas of our hearts that need to be plowed, so to speak. Where our pride and hardness needs to be removed in order to receive the word of God and have it take root. That's why I need you to encourage me. That's why Pastor Josh, Josh <laughs> needs you to encourage him. That's why we need to encourage each other. However, it also teaches us to realize and even beware in our own hearts of the dangers of what's called easy believism. This parable teaches that the word of God is meant to grow and bear fruit in our lives. Because within the bounds of an unchanged life, there lies the promise of a different gospel that says mere belief is all you need. You don't need to change. You don't need to give up the idol of self. You don't need to forget yourself and move forward into Christ. However, the reward of this promise is only death. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way, any gospel which purports to save people without tr also transforming them is inviting easy believism. If you think being a Christian is nothing more than saying a prayer or joining a church, then you've confused real grace with cheap grace. Those who are justified will be sanctified. Those who are justified will be sanctified. Those who are saved are also changed. Those who hear the word of God and keep it bear fruit. But this also begs the question, why does a loving God allow us to be resistant to his word? 
Why are the, the things that, and the reasons that we discussed before, why are they the frequent reactions of our hearts to his word? Let's read again Christ's explanation of the parable, starting in verse 10. And when he, alone, and when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Here Christ is quoting from Isaiah chapter 6 that, that Josh read for us earlier today. He's using what's called a negative purpose statement to say that God does one thing in order that something else might not happen. In this case, in Isaiah 6, God is turning those who see but do not perceive over to the idols that they have been pursuing. He does this for two purposes. One is to enact judgment on those who are deserving of judgment, and two, so that those who are being turned over would see the futility of the idols that they would, are pursuing. So essentially, he gives us over to the trials caused by the things that we pursue in order that we would see the unworthiness of those things. At times, we have to be shown that prior to turning, uh, we have to show, shown, um, sorry, I lost my place here. Um, at times, we have to be shown that pr that prior to turning and being forgiven. Often such trials are an incredibly painful process of having the things that we love more than God be removed from our lives. Another way of saying this is that God prevents the word from entering into our hearts because he understands that in order for it to take root, using a farmer, farming analogy, plowing has to take place first. The things that prevent the word from taking root have to be removed, often painfully, before we're able to see clearly what he is actually saying. We can read this in light of some of the following verses as well. Let's continue on into verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket, or under a bed, and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to the light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Essentially, as commenter R. Kent Hughes points out, Christ is saying that the conditions, excuse me, the condition of one's heart determines its reception to the truth. Think of the scribes who were likely present as Jesus is, is saying these words. They have been given some very straightforward teaching about Christ that they rejected. Thus, they ultimately lost the truth, and what little they had would be taken away from them. The truth is not meant to be covered or hidden. It's meant to shine forth, to be displayed, if you will. And those who receive the truth and act upon it will receive more with the measure that they use to act upon that truth. Contrasting this, those who reject truth will ultimately lose the little bit that they have left. Another way of saying this is to look at how we use our bodies. If we fail to exercise, 
One day we will lose the strength of our, um, the, the use of our physical strength. If we fail to engage our minds and our intellect, there will come a time where we will not be able to use those either. So the very ways that we do not use it, or the va- very ways that we use it improperly, must be corrected through the trials that God gives us over to. That's what he's saying by quoting Isaiah 6. Our hearts ought to be plowed so that we can engage with the word of God to a greater extent, that we may indeed receive the seed and be among those who give a harvest. So we've discussed the main purpose of the parable, namely that we are called to listen and bear fruit. We've seen the many ways that we can be resistant to bearing fruit of the word, as well as the reasons as to why God allows this resistance to occur in our lives, namely because it shows us where our hearts and minds need to be softened and changed in order for the word to take root. In the next couple parables, Christ also gives us an aim, a thing to shoot for um, as we begin seeing our fruits take hold. Please read with me starting in verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. This is a continuation of what happens when we do engage in careful listening. Whether the seeds are planted in our own hearts or we being used by God are able to plant them in the lives of others, we do not control how they grow. In this story, the man scatters seed on the ground. He goes to sleep and wakes up the next day. Suddenly the seed is sprouted and grown everywhere and it's ready for the harvest, but he has no idea how. This goes back to the passage I mentioned earlier where where Paul is saying, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. We often have no idea how the seeds uh, we spread, whether in our own lives or in the lives of others, are going to be made manifest. Our aim is not to enact the harvest. It's not to cause a garden to grow, but merely to plant the seed. This happens both in our own lives and in the lives of others around us. It's not about our ability to be good gardeners, but it's about the goodness of the God who causes the growth. We must submit to him. We must submit to the working of the Holy Spirit as we continue to act in accordance to that working. This is referenced again in the next passage. Uh, Let's read verse 30 through 34. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. It puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. The kingdom of heaven is like a tiny seed that is sown on the ground. It grows up and becomes larger than all the plants of the garden. Yet, 
We know not how. Only God does. This parable, I believe, refers to one of the most beautiful and compelling things about Christianity as a whole. Namely, that the fruit and the, um, that, that the growth and the fruit mentioned in the parable of the sower isn't just for individuals, but for the church as a whole, globally, universally. There are so many stories that show this growth that Christ is talking about. We can think of the disciples on the day of Pentecost, of Peter especially when he speaks to the Jews outside of the temple. Suddenly, 3,000 of them of the same people that days before were cheering and applauding Christ's murder, we see them turn in their hearts and accept him by faith. Can you imagine Peter or any of the other disciples after witnessing the gruesome effects of the crucifixion, experiencing the unfathomable despair in the days afterward, followed by encountering the catastrophic joy of knowing and witnessing the resurrected Christ? Can you imagine them speaking to this crowd of his murderers and seeing 3,000 of them come and repent and believe? Can you imagine the, bewilderness, uh, the, the bewilderment they experienced after bringing forth the light and letting the Holy Spirit do the work? He knows not how the harvest comes. They would not have known how it happened or why it happened, or why of all people Christ's own murderers would be the, some of the first to come to repentance. But seeing with their own eyes, the seed that they had been given to sow becomes a plant that overtakes the entire garden. But that wasn't the end. We know that the growth of this little mustard seed at Pentecost did not stop there. We have seen this seed take root, take over gardens again and again and again. It would take sermons and books to tell the stories of God's handiwork in the life of Paul and the many gardens that he planted. It would take seminaries and lessons and books to show and understand how the seed even overtook the very Roman Empire. Has anyone ever encountered the viral question on uh, social media, specifically asking men, sometimes women, how often they think of the Roman Empire? Go, go ahead and raise your hand if you've heard that. Yeah, so <laughs> a couple of you have. Um, Matt Whitman of the 10-Minute the Bible Hour um, has an excellent video going through a number of reasons as to why this is a really good question and why it makes sense that so many people would be thinking about the Roman Empire so often. I probably think about it several times a week, if I'm honest, and there's a good reason for it. So much of our culture, our thought, our history, our way of being owes itself to the Roman Empire and the development that it brought forth to the Western world. It was an empire that lasted for thousands of years, uh, that's full of story and meaning and brilliance and all of these really compelling things that make it amazing to think about. But it was also something that the apostles and the early church experienced as an integral part of their daily lives. The Roman Empire shaped, in many ways, Christianity itself. But I want you to imagine for a moment the idea of coming across a time machine, being able to go back to the moment at the end of their lives when Peter, who's about to be crucified upside down, or Paul, who was about to be beheaded, uh, or Nathaniel, as he's facing gruesome torture in his death, or Polycarp, or Ignatius, or so many other church fathers as they were facing horrible, horrible deaths at the hands of the Romans. 
I want you to imagine being in a jail cell with them, looking them in the eyes and saying, brother, we win. The church goes on. 500 years from now, the Western Roman Empire will no longer exist. A thousand years from now, Rome will be in ruins. But Christ's church is still prevailing against the gates of hell. Your death, my brother, is but watering the seed that will overtake Rome itself. Take comfort, my brother. We will even overcome Rome. Imagine what the seed of the gospel then can do in your own life if we but listen. Imagine what it can do as it transforms us, as it changes us, as God who gives the growth sees fit. How are we to do this? First, by listening to his voice. Second, by renewing our hearts as the Spirit leads. Psalm 95, 6 and 8 says this, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the sheep of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. At the beginning of today's message, I had mentioned that Jesus seems to think of this parable as the most important one, that if we don't get this parable, we won't get the others. If we are to get this parable, I believe, then it means whenever the word is spoken, it ought to plant seeds in our lives that eventually come to harvest. As the psalm that I just mentioned reminds us, if we hear his voice, we cannot harden our hearts. So what's the opposite of hardening your heart? Softening it. Our approach to, should be to soften our hearts to receive the word of God in all humility and in the many ways that God is able to speak. He speaks through teachers. He speaks through books. He speaks through, through sermons. He speaks through nature and other forms of both particular and general, general re revelation. He speaks through music. We ought to soften our hearts to hear what God has to say as long as today or any day can be called today. Now, we shouldn't be careless about what we listen to, but use our discernment that comes with the growth of the gospel seeds in our lives, which leads to my second, second application. We are called to grow and bear fruit through the renewing of our minds. Romans 12, 1 through 3 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Not only are we called to bear fruit through the renewing of our minds, but to offer our bodies and our very lives as fruit-bearing vessels in obedience to Christ for the sake of the kingdom. This passage, like the parable of the sower, calls us to change, to be renewed, to be sanctified, to bear fruit with the planting of seeds. We ought to be transformed 
by the intentional renewing of our minds, the intentional pursuit of the discernment of the will of God, and all that is good and acceptable and perfect. So may we continue to renew our minds, to bear the fruit of the gospel, to have our intellect, our affections, our thoughts, and even our appetites shaped by the word of God. How do we do this? By aiming to plant gardens? No, but by aiming to plant seeds, both in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. Just in the little moments where the lyrics of a song catch us or a sermon moves us or the word of God itself penetrates into our hearts, we ought to aim to plant seeds, not gardens, but seeds in the lives of those around us. We do this through encouraging each other, through praying with each other, through going out of our way to be kind and loving to each other, not only to those who are part of our local church, but to those on the outside as well, our friends, our coworkers, even strangers on the street. Like the man who plants a mustard seed in the garden, who goes to bed and knows not how, but watches as the seed blossoms into a plant that overtakes the garden, our aim as we display and share the gospel of Christ is in the planting of seeds. If there's ever an urge where we're having that struggle of, of whether or not I should say this or uh, whether or not I should, I should ask that person if I can pray for them, think of it this way. Why would I ever deny an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work in someone else's lives? Let him use me. I'll draw to a close by asking this question. Where is Christ in this growth? Pastor Josh pointed out last week from Mark 3 that the disciples came to, became known for their association and their relationship with Christ. In Mark 4, we will see this repeated theme of being inside and outside of Christ. In verse 11, and repeated again in 33 and 34, Jesus says to his disciples, to you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to everyone outside, everything is in parables. The main point is that we must see Christ as the benefactor, the giver of the growth that we experience. Not only that, but he is the giver of a heart that is being open to receive the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that anyone may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The acts of listening to the words of Christ and bearing fruit are not our own works, but rather the work of Christ that he has set us aside in order that we might live them out. We need to see ourselves as his workmanship, that the blessings such as grace and faith and listening itself come from Christ alone. May we see this as the great purpose that God has called us to in his kingdom and in response to offer ourselves as that living sacrifice to grow in the grace that he has so lavishly poured into our lives. No man or woman ever came to Christ without Christ first completing a work in them first. Christ came to us Christ called us out of darkness and called us into himself. 
so that we may say with the, for the rest of our lives, to God alone be the glory. May this also be our cry as we go forth to plant the seeds in our own lives and in the lives of those we encounter. Let's pray. Our Father, soften the soil of our hearts to be able to receive with joy the seeds that you have for us today. Do whatever you must to give us ears to hear that we would be able to hear, and by your grace to listen to what you have to say and be changed by what you have to say. That the fruits of your gospel may not, not only take hold of part of us, but rather our entire being. I pray that if we hear your voice, we would not harden our hearts, but rather that we would be softened, changed, renewed, and transformed. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.